This week, I picked up a book called Counterfeit Gods by a man named Tim Keller. And in the book, he, he tells this story of a young woman named Anna. Anna's a, a woman who desperately, above everything in her life, wants badly to have children. And that's the, the aim of her life, and she feels like if she could just have that, her life would be complete, and, and she'd be satisfied, and, and she'd achieve all that she wanted to achieve. As some time passed, Anna actually met a man and got married. And then even though doctors questioned the possibility of her having children because of her age, she actually bore two healthy children. She had achieved and received all that she wanted, everything she hoped for she had. And you would imagine her story would sort of end, and Anna lived happily ever after. But it didn't, because it rarely never does, right? Instead, what happens is that these two children that she had longed for, she so badly wanted to create for them the perfect life. She desperately wanted them and so wanted to shelter them, and she wanted to protect them from every flaw and every failure, and she ended up being a very paranoid, overprotective, very sheltering, very smothering mother. So that when her children grew, both of them became very emotionally crippled, paralyzed emotionally, very troubled, very angry children. The thing that she wanted more than anything else, she ended up ruining, and it ended up ruining her. She had built her life on this, and in the end, it took her life. We said last week, but let me say it again, it's very interesting that everybody lives for something, right? You can say you're religious or not religious, but everybody's got something in their life that they go, if I could just get that, I'd finally be complete. I'd finally be satisfied. I'd finally have, and you can fill in whatever it is you're looking for, the recognition I want, the notoriety that I want, the acceptance that I want, the approval, the security, whatever it is you're looking for, you go to something and go, if I could just get that, everything would be right. And we said in the scriptures that whatever that is, is functionally your God. Now you can say, no, 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 I'm religious and I worship God and I believe in Jesus. Yeah, but whatever it is that you're building your life on saying, if I could have that, then I'd find significance and meaning and worth and value. Then my life would be worth something. Then I'd have a name. Then I'd have what I'm looking for. That is ultimately your God. The, the scriptures say we can take all kinds of things. And the, and the tricky part of this is we take good things and make them God. It, it's not just bad stuff that we take and place at the center of our life. It's, it's good things. It's that we take gifts and make them into gods. So marriage is a good thing, but what we'll do is we'll take it and make it an ultimate thing. So that if I could just get married, then my life would be complete. Then I'd have everything that I'm looking for and longing for. And anyone who's been married for 10 minutes will tell you that's not exactly how it works, right? Or, or a job, or, or success, or a degree. If I could just earn this thing, then I'd have everything that I wanted. People would know this about me, and I would finally be significant. I'd finally feel like I wasn't a waste of space. I'd have the approval of everyone, and I'd be complete. It can be success, a job, marriage, home, a degree, whatever it is, and you'll take that and go, this is what my life is about. And if you take that thing away from me, well, I don't even know what's worth left to live for. When you ask those questions, you're beginning to surface out what your real God is. You see, either we'll take gifts and they will bless us, 
or will turn them into gods and will ruin them and they will ruin us. We'll take the gifts that come from God and they'll either be blessings to us or we'll turn them into gods and we'll ruin them and they will in turn ruin us. Children can be another one of these wonderful, marvelous, glorious blessings. And they're great gifts, but they're very lousy gods. And the tendency of the human heart is to take even a good gift like children and turn them into something that they can't bear till we ruin them and it in turn ruins us. In the scriptures, there's a man who was faced with that exact question. There was a, a question in his heart as to what was going to be God in his life. In the scriptures, there's a man who's given an incredible gift. He's given a son. And yet the question that looms over his story, the question that's still to be answered is, will this man find this gift to be a gift, or will he turn it so that this child becomes his God? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 22. It's on page 16 of the Black Bibles. If you need a Bible, we have one in the back. Genesis 22, and in this story that Marty read for us, you're going to meet this man and the story of this gift that God had given to him and the question of who will be God in his life. While you turn there, let me turn our attentions to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll press into this passage together. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for all these men and women that have gathered here. We thank you for this opportunity to sit under the weight of your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would arrest our minds and thoughts and captivate them now. Our minds are fleeting. We think about a thousand things. Our hearts are, are hard. Your word can come and bounce right off. But in this time, we'd ask that the Holy Spirit would come and illuminate our minds and open our blind eyes and, and open our deaf ears and soften our hard hearts that we might see and hear and understand and believe and receive your good word that we would submit and orient our lives around it, that we would repent and that we would believe. Show to us who the Lord is and his good work through Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you come to Genesis 22, you're coming to the story of a man named Abraham. All right. Whether you've got a religious background or not, whether you've read the Bible much or not, most people have at least heard of Abraham and have some kind of familiarity with his story. He's a very well-known figure of faith. In fact, he is the father of faith to the three major religions of the world. Muslims and Jews and Christians all look to Abraham as this great hero, this great pillar, this great father of their faith. And in the Christian scriptures, in the Bible, the very first book of Genesis tells the story of Abraham. In fact, it spends a great deal of time unpacking the details of his life and telling his story. Uh, just for you to get the, the sense of that, Genesis has 50 chapters. And in that 50 chapters, you're introduced to literally thousands of years of history. And yet, when it starts talking about Abraham, this book that's moving at great speed through history slows down to a crawl to walk you slowly through the life of Abraham. In fact, a fifth of this book is dedicated to his life so that you begin to see what God was doing through this man. The scriptures have a great deal to say about him. You're first introduced to Abraham back in Genesis 11. When you meet him in Genesis 11, Abraham is a 75-year-old man. 
He's got a wife named Sarah, and God gives him this great call and promise. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave your family, your country, everything that you knew, because I'm going to bless you. And it's not a small blessing. He says, I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and anybody who curses you, I'm going to curse them, because you are it. And I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. And Abraham, I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to make a nation out of you. And Abraham, I'm going to give you offspring. It's an incredible promise. There's just one small problem. His wife, Sarah, is barren. Her womb doesn't work. And God has made this great and lofty promise to a couple that can't have kids. In fact, God revisits them in chapter 15. And one night he calls Abraham out from the night into the night sky. And he calls him out of his tent and he says, Abraham, look into the sky and tell me how many stars you see. I mean, you picture yourself thousands of years ago in the Middle East, no skyscrapers, no lights, no pollution to, to cloud your view. You get a view into the heavens. How many stars did he see? Thousands, millions, perhaps billions. And God says, Abraham, can you count those? Well, that's how many children I'm going to give you. You're going to have children and children's children and descendants. They're going to be like stars in the sky. Abraham is 75 years old. His wife is barren. And yet, though his body is as good as dead, though his wife's body is as good as dead, he believes. In fact, it's such a hallmark moment that even the New Testament will look back in Romans and Paul will say, do you see Abraham and his faith? That's the kind of faith that justifies you. The kind of faith that believes in God and his promises. But here's the thing, as you turn from chapter 15 and it becomes 16 and 17 and 18, these days since that night sky and that glorious view turn into weeks and into months and into years. Any of you who have tried and had difficulty to conceive or get pregnant, you know how hard that season is. Right? And this isn't just dead print on a page. This is a real man in his life. And the scriptures pull you in so that you feel the emotion of this story. This man was promised a child, and you know what it's like. Every month you hope this time will be the time. And every month is a cruel reminder that it didn't work. Because these months turn into years. And these years turn into decades. And by the time you get to Genesis 21, 25 years have passed since God led him out into that night sky. 25 years since God said, I'm going to give you a son, and through that son, I'm going to give you more children than stars in the sky. And now, when you get to around chapter 18, God revisits this couple again just to reaffirm his promise and let them know they're going to have a child. I mean, it's laughable. And that's exactly what Sarah does. She sneaks to the back, or she's in the back room. She overhears this, and she laughs to herself. I'm going to have a child. I've been praying to you since the day I got married that you would fill my womb. And now that I'm pushing 90, now I'm supposed to get pregnant, right? She laughs at the thought of it because that's what it is. It's a, a laughable idea. In fact, the scriptures want you to know that this is not just a long shot for this couple to get pregnant. It's impossible. The scriptures tell us in chapter 18 that her body is post-menopause. 
The scriptures give you that detail to let you know this isn't just a long shot. She literally, physically is done. She cannot bear children. It is physically impossible. Her cycles are finished. It's not just it might not happen. It can't happen. His body and hers is as good as dead. And then you get chapter 21 and the first three verses. Look at what it says. The Lord visited Sarah and he said, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Right? The scriptures tell you that detail to go, this is no one else that gave Abraham a son. This isn't Hagar, his servant. This is Sarah. And in his old age, she gave him a son. And when you get to chapter 21, it's, it's like finally, after all these long, hard years, things are finally looking up for Abraham and Sarah. They've waited, and they've been faithful, and they've believed, and they've trusted God's promises. Though their bodies were as good as dead, they believed him to come through on his word. And in chapter 21, he does. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 21, look at verse 33 and 34. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. I won't read all the details, but in chapter 21, what's happened is Abraham finally settles down. I mean, from, from the age of 75, he's been on the go. God's promised him he's had to leave. He's got these troubles, these run-ins with his wife, these troubles with whether they're going to have children. There's all kinds of question marks and uncertainty in the story. But when you get to the end of chapter 21, he actually names God and says, you're the everlasting God. Like, like for the first time in his life, you're the enduring, stable, everlasting God. And you find that for the first time, he's not on the move anymore. He's settled down. In fact, in this passage, he makes this treaty. He's in a foreign land, but he's grown to such wealth and influence and power that the king of that land takes notice of Abraham and says, let's make a treaty so that you and I are good. Think of that. He's in the foreign land, and the most powerful man of that land needs to make a treaty with him just to make sure they're on the same page. So, so what you have at the end of chapter 21 is Abraham and Sarah's golden years, right? They've worked hard for a long time. Now the retirement accounts are full. They've settled down. They've got the house. They've, they've got the wells that they've built. The finances are in order. And more than anything, they've got a son. The, the, the promise of this offspring, their line is going to continue. He's going to have a descendant. He's going to have someone to pass on his inheritance to. Everything is finally right and good. And, and 21 ends almost as if the text lets you let out this deep sigh. <sighs> finally, everything is right. And then you get you get the most jolting passage perhaps in all of Scripture. Because 22 verse 1 begins, And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. After these things, God tests Abraham. 
And, and God calls to him, and, and he says, here am I. And the scene is just like chapter 15. Abraham, here am I, ready to do your word, ready to believe whatever you're about to say, just like I did before. Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and take him to the mountains that I'm going to show you, just like I led you to the land you didn't know. I'm going to tell you where to go, and there I want you to sacrifice your son as a whole burnt offering to me. All right, now some, some things. The readers, that's us, we're given some information in verse 1 that Abraham d- is not privy to. We're told right off the bat, God is testing Abraham. Whew. Right? We, we get to let out a sigh of relief because we don't have to go through the emotional roller coaster of figuring out what's about to happen because we know we're, we're given information that Abraham isn't. We know this is a test. Abraham doesn't. But at least for us, what that does is it changes how we look at the passage. Because for us, the primary question is not, how is Isaac going to do at the end of this? For us, the primary question is, how is Abraham going to do at the end of this? Do you hear that? Because we know that this is a test. We know what's about to happen. We're let in on the information that the, the thrust of this text, the question you should be asking, is not, will Isaac make it through this thing okay, but will Abraham make it through this thing okay? Will he pass the test? And you need to know that God does that. God tests his people. God tested Abraham. God tests us. He tests us to purify and prove our faith to be true. He tests us. And his intentions when he does so is good and for us. It's not to ruin us, but to save us. God tests his people so that their faith might be more true. God tests his people so that he might have more of their hearts and their hearts might have more of him. Hear that again. God tests his people so that he might have more of us and our hearts might have more of him. He tests us so that we might have more of God. Now you need to be careful to know that this is not temptation. This is not for our evil. In fact, James 1.13 makes sure to clarify this so that it tells us, listen, if any of you are tempted, that's to sin, to evil, do not say God has tempted me, for God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God is not tempting us for evil. Satan does that, and he does it to destroy us and to ruin us. God rather tests us for our good, to rescue us, to save us. The the temptations of Satan are for our ruin. The testings of God are for our good. And what he intends to do through these testings is to save us to have more of him. So that our lives wouldn't be built on things that in the end cannot satisfy and cannot pan out and cannot bear the weight of what you put on it. For example, he tells the people of Israel, his people, as they're wandering through the desert, listen, I let you go hungry. I did that. I did it to you. So that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Is it cruel? It's actually good. It's it's to save them from building their lives on things that rot and in the end won't hold up so that they might learn, their hearts otherwise wouldn't learn, they might learn that he is truly what they need. You tell me, would God be good if he held back himself but gave them bread? Or would he be good if he held back bread for a little while so that they might have more of himself? 
which will do better for them in the long run. And so for a few days, he lets their stomachs growl so that they might begin to learn you're not to place your life, you're not to seek your life and your sustenance and, and security on these things. You are to train your heart that they are found in me because if you don't, you'll never learn the lesson and you will ruin it and it will in turn ruin you. God tests so that he might save us from taking gifts and making them gods. He, he rescues us from ruining gifts by making them gods so that they would be ruined and we would be ruined. So then what is this test that's ultimately for Abraham's good? How is God about to rescue Abraham from taking a gift and making it a God? Where's this test by which God is going to ultimately purify and prove Abraham's faith? Genesis 22.2, listen to it again. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. All right, right off the bat, let's at least concede with each other. This is a very hard passage to figure out. We have real ethical problems and, and question marks as to why would God say something like that? And, and I don't pretend to know the answer to that mystery, right? It's a, it's a difficult problem. Why would God, who in Genesis 9 has already tell, told us that he hates the taking of life, why would God, who told Israel, don't be like the Canaanites who offer child sacrifices? Because I love your children. Why would this God say this to Abraham? And, and though it doesn't make it any easier, perhaps at least understanding the context and culture of Abraham's day might at least help you hear it as Abraham would have heard it. You see, in his day, it was known that the firstborn belonged to God. A, a firstborn son was more than just a firstborn son. He, he represented everything about you. Right? So your inheritance was going to him. Your name was going to him. Your line was carried through him. Your future rested on him. That firstborn son represented all the family. And because the family was sinners, God required that the firstborn be his to atone for the sins of everyone else. Even in Exodus, he'll say, listen, you, your firstborn belong to me. If you read through the story of Exodus, what we're going to preach on in a few weeks, you know that one of the judgments God brings on Egypt is he does what? He kills the firstborn. And he lays on them the sin of that whole nation. And so God has a right to the firstborn. In fact, for Israel, what he's going to say is, you're to make these sacrifices to ransom and redeem your firstborn. Otherwise, they belong to me. So at least, it doesn't make it easier, but at least I want you to hear that in Abraham's mind, he would have heard this command, not as this call to murder, but as a, a settling of an account. You, you owe this here. And, and the command is, I want you to make a burnt offering of your son. That is, he was literally to cut him to pieces and set a fire so that the whole thing was consumed to God. And this burnt offering was a picture of I'm completely yours, and I'm holding nothing back. You can consume it all. And so the test here is, is everything to him? Does he have it all? Again, that doesn't make it easier, but at least perhaps you can hear it as Abraham heard it. So what I want to ask is, why this test? Why does he pick out Isaac? Consider again what Isaac represents to Abraham. Isaac is everything. 
All of God's promises are found in Isaac. This promise of land and offspring and nation and a great name, this promise of descendants like the stars in the sky, all of that is wrapped up in this little boy. All of Abraham's hope, all of Abraham's expectations, all of Abraham's future, all of Abraham's faith, all of it is tied to this son. And and it's not just that the promises are wrapped up in this boy. This is a boy that Abraham loves. Don't miss that. Don't miss that in the details to think this must have been easy for Abraham. This was his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. Verse 2 gives you that threefold phrase to sort of press your finger on the heart and go, do you get this? This is his son, his only son, the son whom he loves, Isaac. This is no easy thing. This is the boy that he and his wife waited 25 years for. And here's the question. And I think here lies this whole test. Where does Abraham's heart ultimately rest? Who ultimately owns Abraham's heart? Where does his, when the last words are said, where does his final loyalty lie? And on what is Abraham's faith and future and hope and security and all that he is, does it rest ultimately in God or does it rest even in something precious like his son Isaac? If you're a parent, I want you to hear me. I am not saying that it's wrong to love your children. Hear that very clearly. In fact, I want you to hear this. It's not that we will ever love them too much but rather that we will love God too little. It's not that we'll ever love our children too much, but rather that we will love God too little. It's not wrong to think of them dearly. It's only wrong to think of them supremely. It's only wrong to set up a place that is highest and uppermost in your hearts, a spot that is reserved for God, and to give that seat to your children. When you do that, you have inevitably taken a good gift and turned it into a God. And the scriptures call that idolatry. The scriptures saying, you're a worshiper, you're very religious, you just don't know that you've taken God out of the equation and put your kids in place. Anything that's a good thing that we make a God-like thing are idols. And, and you need to know, again, it's not the bad stuff that we often do. It's good things. In fact, the more good it is, the more easier it is for it to become an idol for us. Hear that. A good cause, a, a good job, a good career, a good pursuit, a good family, a good gift like a son. The better the gift, the more tendency our hearts have to turn it into an idol. We can do it with our children. Parents, hear me. Or some of you that are children, you know the great weight and pressure you have felt in trying to live up to all that your parents hoped you to be. Some of you have been crippled under the weight of being all that your parents wanted you to be. And somehow you've got this frightening fear that it wasn't just for your good, but rather they were building their meaning, their significance, their name, their identity on you. That you were the source by which they were going to finally go, we've arrived, we've achieved something, we're successes, look at our kids. And that kind of pressure cripples you. In fact, some of you, even as adults, you are paralyzed by the thought, did you turn out to be all that your parents had hoped you to be? 
Or did you ultimately and inevitably let them down? Because I want to tell you, none of us can bear the weight of being godlike or being worshipped. Because we can't do it. We'll inevitably fail the others around us. And they will inevitably have ruined us and ruined themselves in the process. Right? Some of us know the pain of feeling like we've never amounted out to all that they had placed on because everything about their meaning was supposed to come through us. We joked about it last week, but again, I want to remind you, and now some of you are parents, and you know, you need your children to do whatever, because not just for their sake, but for yours. I need Hannah to perform well in public so everyone knows what a good dad I am, right? Not for her sake, but can you imagine how crippling that pressure is going to be? And my daughter and son are, are pastor's children. Can you imagine the weight if I find my identity through them? How are they ever going to live up to that? And what I will do is I will inevitably ruin them, and their failures will inevitably have ruined me. Because if you place your identity on anything or everything other than God, it will buckle under the weight it wasn't meant to support. It can't give you what it's, you're looking for. The significance, the recognition, the acceptance, the approval, all that stuff that your heart longs for, you have in Jesus, or you don't have it, because the other idols that you set up cannot bear the weight that you place on it. Hear what this one pastor said, particularly about children. He says, nothing will destroy children quite like turning them into idols, Hear this, if Abraham had not been willing to destroy Isaac, he would have destroyed Isaac. Had not Abraham placed Isaac on Yahweh's altar, he would have killed him on Abraham's altar. Did you hear that? If Abraham had not been willing to destroy Isaac, he would have destroyed Isaac. And if he had not been willing to place Isaac on Yahweh's altar, he would have killed him on Abraham's altar. Tell me that's not true. So you see, what, what this means is you as parents, you will either offer your children to God and say, God, you are God, and these gifts I submit and surrender to you. Or you'll find your God. You'll say, success, you are my God, and I offer these children as sacrifices to you. I offer my wife and family as sacrifice because I need you. Human approval, you are my God, and I'll do whatever it takes to have you. And if it requires my children, here they are, because I'll sacrifice them to have you. You are my God. We'll worship something. Human approval, human applause, security, meaning, identity, whatever it is, we'll say, this is what I'm after. And here are the sacrifices that I'll place, and I am willing and ready to ruin them so that I can have you. That's idolatry. You worship something. The question is, are you going to worship God who can support the weight of your expectations? Or are you going to worship created gifts rather than creator so that they'll buckle and in the end you'll ruin them and they'll ruin you? If, if all of that is true, then, then that changes how we see this test. It's not a cruel God who's picking on Abraham. It's a merciful God that's seeking to save his heart from ruining himself and ruining his son. It's a God who's rescuing him so that he makes sure that Abraham never turns a gift into God. You see, the way to best love Isaac is to give him to God and let God be God. 
You'll either keep him and end up losing him, or you'll lose him to God and end up blessing and keeping him. So, so here's the test, not just for Abraham, but for all of us. And, and, I, and I want you to hear, it'll be as hard for us as it was for Abraham. Where does your ultimate loyalty lie? In the last word, when everything else is said and done, who owns your heart? What is supreme? What is uppermost? What is greatest? Who sits atop your heart? And what this test does is it reveals two things, and, and, and I want us to consider that before we finish. It reveals to us both Abraham's heart and God's heart. By the time you're done with these 14 verses, you'll get a look into Abraham's heart and God's heart. So consider this test for a second, and let's consider Abraham's heart. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. You're about to get a look into Abraham's heart, and it's, and it's wonderful. You're not even given the drama of the story is sort of building up, and you're not even given the scenes that you sort of want to know about. Like, does he go and tell Sarah? Or what would that conversation have been like? Does he talk with Isaac? What was the internal conversation in his own mind? What was the questions that he was battling? What, what was he doing in his own thoughts? God, I thought you promised this, and, but, but God, you've said this. How did the two go together? We're not given any of it. In fact, all we're told is that the very next day, Abraham gets up. We're just given a look into obedience, step after step. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I think you're given that detail about the journey being three days so that you know what, what this meant for Abraham. This wasn't like some quick decision. This wasn't some kind of knee-jerk reaction saying, let me just do this and get it over with as fast as I can. This was three days. He had a lot of time to think about it and to mull on it. This was minute after minute and hour after hour and day after day. This is walking with his son and conversations and meals and setting up a fire and setting up camp and going to sleep and waking up and going at it again and doing that again. This is three days of journey in the same direction in obedience to God. Verses 5 through 8. I won't read the text again, but, but what happens is Abraham tells his two servants when they finally reach the place, listen, you stay here. The boy and I will go up, and then it uses the weirdest pronoun, and we will return. We'll go worship, and we'll come back. And then along the way, you find that this little boy who, who's old enough to know and understand, we don't know Isaac's age, but we know that he's ready to go and offer worship with his father, sacrifice with his father. And so along this way, as the father is leading this son up a mountain on which he will be sacrificed, Isaac is carrying the wood on which he would lie on his own back. This son, this firstborn son, calls out to his father. And he says, my father, and Abraham immediately responds, here I am, my son. And the boy asks, we've got the wood and we've got the fire. Where is the lamb? And again, I don't know if Abraham had made sense of it all yet, but somehow he answers, God himself will provide the lamb. And they keep walking. And again, I don't know what was going on in Abraham's mind, but somehow he believed in fact, Hebrews eleven seventeen gives us some light on this and says, Abraham in faith offered up his son, believing that God would even raise him from the dead. Think of that. 
Abraham's faith was so solid. You've promised me that I'm going to have children and it's going to be through Isaac. And at the same time, you've called me to slaughter him. How are you going to work these out? I have no idea, but you will. And even if that means that after I rip him apart, you bring him back from the dead, I'll believe you to do it. And somehow he tells these servants, we're going to come back. We're going to come back. From this death, we're going to come back. And so he keeps walking. And in verse 9 and 10, he gets up to the place where finally God shows him the mountain on which his firstborn son will be sacrificed. And he builds the altar and he lays Isaac on top. And you're about to find out whether God has Abraham's heart. In verse 10, he literally picks up the knife. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And then the test is revealed. And you find out you do know Abraham's heart because verse 11 says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham, Abraham, he calls him twice, just like any man at a moment of crisis, right? Samuel, Samuel, he calls out. Saul, Saul, he calls out. In the same way, Abraham, Abraham, don't kill your son. Don't do any harm on him. And then this is what he says. For now I know that you fear God, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That word feared is not, now I know you're afraid of me. That word fear in the scriptures is actually a word of of love, of of reverence, of awe, of joy, of relationship. So, for example, in Psalm 130, it'll say, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Hear that? With you there is forgiveness that you may be what? Afraid? That we might be afraid of you? No. In receiving your grace and forgiveness, there's renewed love and and righteous awe and reverence and joy as we receive grace from you. Another way a pastor said that you could read this is, now I know that you love me, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And what you begin to see is at the end of this test, it's not just that Isaac has been saved. Abraham's been saved. Hear that? It's not just that God saved Isaac, God rescued Abraham, and his heart was again put in the right order. God was God, and his gifts were his gifts, and God saved him from ruining his son and ruining himself, and you get a picture into Abraham's heart. God had his heart. But before we leave this text, I want you to see that there's a greater heart revealed in the story as well, because you're shown not only Abraham's heart, You're shown God's heart. Look at verse 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught up in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Seven Mile Road, hopefully your hearts are beginning to drool. Because I want you to hear not just Abraham's heart, but God's heart. And so consider this scene with me. God provided a substitute for Isaac. Isaac was supposed to die, and God provides a sacrifice 
to take his place. Isaac was as good as dead, but God brings him from death and gives him new life, and he gives him that new life through the death of another. Seven Mile Road, who is that getting you ready for? Tell me. The answer to all things, Jesus. This text is getting you ready for Jesus. You see, if I told you that God wants the things that are closest and dearest and nearest to your heart, how are you going to give that to him unless you first know his heart? How are you going to trust him with the things that are most important to you unless you know what his heart is for you? How are you going to say to this God, everything I have is yours, unless you first know that everything he had was given for you? And this passage has the power to help you release your false gods because this passage shows you God's heart. How? The scriptures say that we are sinners. Sinners not just because we did bad things, but because we're idolaters. We've built our lives on things other than God. We've looked to different things and said, save me. Be my savior. Give me significance. Give me worth and meaning and acceptance and all that I'm looking for. And rather than worshiping created God, we have worshiped creator things. Do you know what the Bible says that God should do to idolaters? He should take them up on mountains and slaughter everyone. He would be just and right to do so. But instead of taking you up a mountain, this father led his firstborn son up a mountain. And this firstborn son carried the wood on which he would be laid down on his own back, and he climbed to the top of that hill. The father slaughters his son for your sake. And that firstborn son is Jesus. And Jesus is the firstborn son who would represent all the people and all of their sins would be paid for and atoned by him. Rather than slaughtering you, the father slaughters his own son. Commentators say it's, it's this scene of Abraham that Paul was thinking of when he says in Romans, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That Paul's thinking about Abraham and saying, if God the Father gave his own son and didn't spare him, how much more will he give us all things that we need? That stuff that you're looking for, identity and meaning and approval and acceptance, all of that is found in his son. You see, even as this passage is showing us that our hearts are to be for God, it shows us that God's heart is for us. Even as it's calling you to give to God, it's showing you that God has already given to you. Because thousands of years later, Mount Moriah is some hills outside of Jerusalem. And on another hill outside of Jerusalem, thousands of years after this scene, the father would lead his firstborn son. And Jesus would climb that hill with the wood on his own back, and he would be lied down. And one of the details of this text that's ripped my heart this week is Isaac is walking up and he's about to be sacrificed and he cries out to his father and he says, my father. And what does Abraham do? Like any good dad, he immediately doesn't waste a moment. He says, my son, here am I. But when the other son, Jesus, was led on that mountain, he too cried out. He too called out to his father and he said, my father or my God, my God. And the father says nothing. 
The father turns his face from his son and lets his boy die there alone. He lets his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Jesus Christ, die there alone. And Jesus was literally the loneliest man on the planet. God himself had forsaken him. And this father did not spare that son. And this father didn't rescue that son or redeem that son or deliver that son. Because in order to rescue and deliver and redeem you, he had to leave that son there to die alone for you. And that firstborn son took all of our sins on his own shoulders and died there on that piece of wood alone. And where God spared Isaac, he crushed Jesus. And where God delivered Isaac, he killed Jesus. Where Isaac was let go, Jesus was put to death. And it's for your sake. One pastor says it like this, if God could look to Abraham at the end of this and say, now I know you love me because you did not spare or hold back your son, your only son from me, how much more would we look to the heavens and say, God, now we know you love us because you did not spare your son, your only son, Jesus, from us or for us. You did not hold back your son, your only son, for us. If God calls you to give up anything, it's because he's already given for you everything. And he wants to give your heart what it truly desires, which is more of himself. And in this test, you're revealed not just to Abraham's heart, but to God's heart. So that we look to the heavens and say, Father, now we know that you love us because you did not spare your only son, the son whom you love, Jesus, for our sake. Let's pray.